Good morning. Let's turn our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. So we continue our series in that one, this wonderful little book. <clears throat> Pastor is away today. He needs to get away sometimes and just refresh. So please be praying for him. Of course, Melanie and the kids are here. She doesn't need to be refreshed. She, she, likes, uh, she likes being in the battle. So she's, no, pray for her as well. But pray for Pastor as he's just kind of, I don't know, vegging or whatever he does. His version of, his version of, ve- version of vegging is reading a 400-page book. So there's something wrong with him, but pray for him anyway. <clears throat> Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning as we begin. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. He's been speaking about submission. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject to, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. And now verse 1 of chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. By the way, it doesn't mean that women are to be submissive to their husbands in the same way that slaves are submissive to their masters. Let's get that on the table right away. That's not the idea there. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not believers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the prating of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but instead let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is extremely precious. For, here's some examples now of that kind of living. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's look at verse 7. That's what we'll look at at a future time. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And we'll look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. I was a newly saved 16-year-old, when I got to know Delbert and Fern Ennis. They were an older couple in the church in which I was saved in Wisconsin. They were farmers. Delbert was a a farmer. I think they were in their 70s when, when I first got to know them. Delbert was very quiet, a very godly man, highly respected. He was one of these E.F. Hutton types, if any of you remember that commercial, probably none of you do, where when he talked, everyone just stopped talking and listened because he was such a wise and godly man. I even had a pastor of the church tell me that. Uh, if he ever opens his mouth, you just stop talking because he is such a wise and godly man. Whatever he says is gold, really. That was Delbert. Fern, his wife, was also very godly, very sweet. She was very bright, had a very vibrant personality, different from her husband in that way, quick-witted, always cheerful. So they were, they were different. He was the quiet, almost never opened his mouth kind of a guy. And she was the bright, vibrant, quick-witted um, individual in that marriage. 
I remember talking with them, eating in their home, and just generally watching them and learning from them. One lesson I learned from them was how a God-pleasing marriage worked and how a godly wife related to her husband. He was so quiet, and she was so quick-witted. It would have been very easy for her to kind of just bowl over him whenever he started to talk. She just could have gone and just kept going and, and not let him speak. I remember the two of them speaking. I remember him laughing at her bright comments and quick wit. I remember that every time I directed a question at him, she would just hold her tongue and let him answer. And I remember the fact that clearly she respected him. He was the loving leader in their home. There was just no question. I also remember how the two of them spoke about each other. There was never a hint of disrespect or disregard. They, of course, disagreed at times, but you never knew it from how they spoke about one another. I remember how highly they spoke of one another to other people. There was always a clear respect from both of them regarding the other. It's interesting, there was another guy who got saved about the same time, a good friend, became a good friend of mine. He uh, is a year older than I am. I was 16, he was 17, and as young guys, just newly saved, and I've mentioned this story before in other contexts here, we were looking for, okay, we, we know the girls we were dating before. What are we really looking for in, in, in a future wife? And these two young punks, we looked at that 70, I don't know, two-year-old woman and said, that's, that's the kind of woman that we want to settle down with. That tells you a lot about her. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, God gives us the ingredients, some of the ingredients of a good, happy, and God-pleasing marriage. And the first ingredient we'll consider is the role that wives play in the marriage relationship consider that this morning. There are a few places in Scripture where God provides a definition of a godly woman. Proverbs 31, of course, would be one of the first texts we'd run to, and that deserves deep study. That's a wonderful text. Another is this text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1, or for, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I think the point of these verses is simply this. Godly wives express inner beauty with holy conduct. Godly wives express inner beauty they're not, they're, they're not so concerned, not that they're not at all concerned, but they're not so concerned with the external. They're really concerned more. Their priority is the internal. And they express that inner beauty with holy conduct. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. Thank you, Father, for this portion of your word. It is so wonderful and so helpful. We ask that you would use it to encourage each one of us. I pray for each um, each woman here, each lady here, that you'd use this to minister in their hearts. Um, you know what. You know what will make us happy and satisfied in a marriage relationship. You know better than our society knows. You know better than Hollywood knows. You know better than we know. What the ingredients of a happy God-pleasing marriage are. And use this text, Lord, to minister to us today. Thank you for Jesus. We love him. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Godly wives. First of all, they submit to their husbands. 
Look at verse 1 again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This word, sub, be subject, the, the term there, is hupatasso. It's a very common term in the New Testament. But before, before we note what Peter says here, uh, let's uh, remember what the rest of the New Testament says in regard to God-established authority structures and about leadership and submission within those authority structures. God's established authority structures, and there are ways we function within those structures. This word hupatasso means to be submissive to, to be subject to. There is leadership exercised, there is submission exercised. Clearly, that's the idea of the term. And one of the aspects of a wife's role is this submission to the leadership of her husband. Let's remember as we consider this word that submission is not exclusively commanded, ladies, of you. The same term is used throughout the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus was subject to his earthly parents. In Luke 10, demons were subject to Jesus' disciples. In Romans 13, Titus 3, uh, 1 Peter 2, citizens are subject to government authorities. 1 Peter 2.18, slaves, employees are subject to their masters or employers. 1 Peter uh, 3.22, angels, authorities, and powers are subject to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1, the universe is subject to Christ. James chapter 4, Christians are subject to God. Ephesians 5, uh, uh, the church is subject to Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, church members are subject to faithful pastors. The same word is used outside the New Testament of soldiers being subject to their commanding officers. So, it's not simply that wives are the only ones being submissive to an authority. No, we're all to submit to different authorities within our lives. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4 really helps us. It speaks of authority structures within the family and within the Godhead. And it says this, The head of every man is Christ, Meaning the leadership, the authority. The authority over every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Speaking of God the Father. Let's just exegete that a little bit. So men and husbands are to submit to Christ. Men, we are under Christ and his authority. We do what he commands in his word. Wives are to submit to their husbands. And Christ is to submit to God the Father. Now, we find a clear lesson here, simply that submission does not indicate or imply that one is lesser than another. Submission, the authority structure, and submission to an authority does not imply or indicate that the one submitting is lesser in some way than the one they're submitting to. And if it does communicate that, then we have to conclude that within the Godhead, the Son is lesser than the Father. The Son is submitting to the Father. And so if we're going to conclude that submission means one is less than, we have to conclude that the Son is less than the Father. He's somehow less God than the Father. 
In eternity past, before anything was created, there existed the triune God. Three distinct persons in one essence. These three infinitely holy, perfect, and loving persons existed in absolute harmony, fellowship, and joy. None was greater or lesser than the others. Each was equally God in every respect. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are different persons within the Godhead, and each has a different role than the others. We're talking about the roles, what they do. And we see these roles described in different passages. Let me just read a few passages to you. John 4, 34, Jesus says, My food, my sustenance, is to, the will, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My sustenance, my food, is to do what the Father wants me to do. Clearly there's an authority structure there. He is to do whatever the Father wants him to do. He's not doing what he wants. John 8, 28 and 29. I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 14, 24 through 26. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear, in other words, the word I'm saying to you, what, I teach, what I'm teaching to you, is not mine but the Father's who sent me. What I'm saying is not my own words. The Father gave me these words to, to speak to you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I've said. So he mentions the Spirit. So, he is clear. The words I speak and what I do, they're not my words. I do what the Father wants me to do. And the Spirit will come. And of course, He has come now. And the Spirit will do what the Father dictates that He will do. So you have within the Godhead an equality. Father, Son, Spirit. All, all three equally God. None is lesser or greater than the other. But you also have an authority structure established in eternity past. Father, Son, Spirit. And those roles do not in any way communicate that one is lesser than the others. That's how it is in marriage. From eternity past, there's been an authority structure within the Godhead, and God also established authority structures within society and within the family. There's submission among equals in the Godhead. And there is submission among equals in society and within the family. Submission within those structures pleases the members of the Godhead. The kind of submission we're talking about between the three and in the marriage and in society, those authority structures please God. And they accomplish His purposes. And they are for the good of creation. There is nothing more satisfying in a marriage relationship than the, the right authority, the authority structure and each one playing the, the role that God demands that they play. Now, regarding a wife's submission to her husband, let's talk for a minute about what submission does not mean. It does not mean that the wife gives up independent thought. She just kind of folds herself within the husband. She has no thoughts of her own. We don't see that in, in this text or in any of the texts that speak of submission. We certainly don't see it in Genesis either. 
It does not mean that the wife should have no influence within the family around the husband. Clearly in this text, she used to influence her husband, right? By her godly conduct. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, she is a helper for him. She completes him. So certainly she has influence within the family and on her, directly on her husband. It does not mean that the wife puts her husband before obedience to Christ. It doesn't mean that the wife gives in to her husband's sinful demands. Verse 2 speaks of her purity, her godliness. By the way, in many cases, in Peter's day, the husband's paganism would obligate his wife to worship false gods along with him. And in some cases, that worship would involve immorality. And what's a Christian wife, obeying the scriptures, going to do when her husband demands that she worship other gods alongside of him? What is she going to do? She can't do it. Just to say to her husband, I love you, I respect you, but I cannot worship the deity that you worship. And I cannot be involved in the immorality that that worship dictates. And by the way, in that culture, and in that culture, let me mention, that normally the husband is much older than the wife. The guys pick women younger than them. So there's, and normally the man has more, man has more education than the wife. So she's in a a hard situation. She's younger. She's maybe less educated than her husband. And she has to stand before him and say, I can't do that. In that culture, that could bring her some serious problems. And yet, though she is to submit to him, she cannot submit in those times. So ladies, you're not commanded to always submit to your husband. If he asks you to sin, you cannot. It does not mean that the wife is inferior to her husband in her personhood, in her value, or in her status before God. I think we just saw that in 1 Corinthians 14. Vaughan says, No inferiority of women, spiritual, moral, or intellectual, is implied. It is a subordination of function involving the wife's role as wife and mother within the intimate circle of the home. The New Testament consistently teaches that such wifely submission is not simply a matter of convention or social custom, but a part of the plan of God in creation. This wasn't just this arrangement, this authority structure, was not just invented somewhere along the line. This is God's plan. And of course, that's what we're told. This is an invention. This is a convention of, of, of men. We, this was invented somewhere along the line. So we can, we can toss out this authority structure within the home. No, God established this. Let me give you a quick definition of submission, as we'll see it kind of throughout this text, if we looked at other texts. Submission is an inner quality of sweetness that supports the husband's leadership within the marriage and family. It is a inner quality of sweetness. It's not simply an external. An inner quality of sweetness that supports the husband's leadership within the marriage and the family. Okay, let's talk about submission for just a moment. First, submission is founded upon the one flesh relationship within the marriage. Look at verse 1 again. Likewise, uh, uh, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Notice the wording there. He doesn't say be subject to husbands. Ladies, you're not to submit to every husband in this room, right? 
He doesn't even say be subject to your husband. He says be subject to your own husband. He's really specific here. The Greek is very strong, very clear. I think Peter is stressing very strongly, as strongly as he can, the exclusiveness of this relationship. I think, he's, I think he has in mind the one flesh relationship between husbands and wives mentioned in Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5. There's this one flesh relationship that a wife and a husband have with each other, and they don't have that relationship with anyone else. And that one flesh relationship is the foundation of the marriage and the family. This relationship involves complementary partnership. The the husband and wife complement one another. Uh, they, they, They complete each other. They work together. This is a partnership in which they complement each other. In a marriage, there's there's love and intimacy, respect and interdependence. Yes, there's leadership and yes, there's submission, but those roles function within the context of a complementary partnership. It's not just do what I say. That's not it at all. And we've seen that communicated sometimes in churches. Sometimes, I've seen this personally, sometimes wives are just doormats for a husband. That is sin. It is not God's design at all. When you see a God-honoring marriage, you don't see an overbearing husband and a demeaned, cowed wife. There's no cringing before this husband. That's not a God-pleasing marriage. You see a man and a woman who work together within the home. When a decision needs to be made, they bring their expertise and their experience and their perspective to the table. They hash out whatever the decision is. They think about it together. They chat about it. They pray about it. Maybe they meet and talk about it multiple times. Let's talk about this again and again and again. And that is the, then that's the norm in a good marriage. That's this one flesh idea kind of being fleshed out. We're complementing each other. This is a partnership where we complement one another. And so we sit down and let's talk about this decision to do this or do that or send the kids to that school or, or buy this house or sell that house, whatever it is, or this job or that. Let's talk about this. What do you think? And here's what I think. And let's pray about it. And let's keep talking about this. It might be one conversation. It might be 30 conversations to figure this out. And 98% of the time, in a God-pleasing marriage, where the two are complementing one another and completing one another and love each other, where there's mutual respect, 98 percent of the time, they're going to come to a consensus. Let's just do this. We've been praying about this, talking about this. We've, I think this is the right thing to do. And they're going to come to agreement. That's how it's normally going to be in a marriage. It's not a deal where the husband just says, this is what we're doing. If you don't like it, tough beans. That is sin. Now there are times, once in a while, I think it's pretty rare actually in a good marriage, where there's a disagreement and a decision has to be made. And at that point, the husband leads. He does so humbly. He does so lovingly. 
But he says, I, I really think we need to do this. At that point, she respectfully submits to her husband's position of leadership in the home. That's one of the ways one flesh is manifested in a marriage. Submission is continual. I'm going to borrow from Paul now. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. So it's a consistent thing. Now, of course, unless if there's sin involved, then no, right? Submission is one aspect of submission to Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He's not saying that your husband is the Lord. He's saying submit to your husband as part of your obedience to the Lord. If you love God, if you're following Christ, if you're following the Lord, submission is part of that. Loving, sweet submission is part of that. Submission, may also, uh, submission is also exercised with an attitude of sweetness. He mentions here in verse, in verse 4, this whole idea of gen- gentle and quiet spirit. And the main point of this text is submission, but there are other things we'll see as well. And this idea of gentle and quiet spirit. Submission with any other attitude is not biblical submission. It's not submission to say... All right, we'll do it your way. (laughs) This is is not it, right? It might be, I still don't see it that way. I don't agree with you in this. I told you why. But if you think we should do that, if you think we should do that, husband, God's holding you accountable. Ladies, let me just mention how terrifying that is. If he blows it, he's going to stand before the Lord with it. But he does have to lead at those points. Submission may have a saving impact on an unbelieving husband. We see this in verse 1. Do this, be subject, so that even if someone, if, if a husband does not obey the word, they may be one without the word by the conduct of their wives. So this idea, by the way, of some do not obey the word, this is a very strong phrase. It's stronger than it probably looks in the English. It refers to someone um, who refuses to believe the gospel, to someone who deliberately sets themselves up against it. It's not just, no, that's not for me. It's, don't talk to me about this again. I want nothing to do with Christianity. Just Don't bring it up. That's the idea here. Very, very strong, open, deliberate, active rejection of the gospel. So what's a wife to do if her husband strongly rejects the word of God and the gospel? Should she try to reach him by living as he lives? Maybe if I just go to the bars with him and and do all the stuff he wants to do, that'll that'll do it. No, verse 2, 3, 4 speaks of Respectful and pure conduct, right? Should she stop trying to reach him altogether? I'm not going to bother trying to reach him. Just live her life as an individual Christian. Should she just do that? No, she can't do that because she's not just an individual. She's part of a one flesh relationship and the greatest need her husband has is Christ. So she keeps trying to reach him. No Christian woman with an unsaved husband is in a hopeless situation. Clearly from this text. 
We see that. God's a God of miracles. He gives life to the spiritually dead. He, gives, he opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. So you keep praying for your husband if that's the situation. You keep praying for your husband. You live a godly life before your husband and ask God to do a work that only he can do. According to Peter, what will impact such husbands most strongly is godly conduct of their wives. Peter's not saying, of course, that the wife's godly speech is not useful. He is simply stressing the fact that godly conduct speaks louder than anything else. You can have all the Christian words and say all the right things, but he's going to watch, and he's going to see who you really are. In fact, this is stressed. Verse 2, this word see, when they see the respectful and pure conduct. This word translated see speaks of close, thoughtful observation. Your husband, in this case, the husband is watching. It's not just a matter of what's said, but he's watching. Does this really impact you? Is this really, really real in your life? One author says, if the husband will not yield to the authoritative spoken word of the gospel, he may be reached by the wife's silent demonstrations of its transforming power in her daily conduct. Instead of trying to coax and argue her husband into becoming a Christian, she will be more effect, uh, she'll be more effective by quietly living out its saving power before him. If he sees Christ constantly in that in conduct, that may have an impact on him. So first of all, godly wives are submissive to their husbands. Secondly, godly wives exhibit holiness, verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, the fact that unbelieving husbands see their wives' conduct highlights another quality of a godly wife. In the life of a godly wife, there is visible and evident holiness. It's seen. It's heard by how she speaks to other people, by what she does, how she carries herself. It's visible. This word respectful, by the way, you think maybe he's speaking of respect for the husband. The word is translated fear a few times in this book of the fear of God. And I think that's the idea here. It's not respect for the husband, though that I think is true. I think the idea is that there is a, in this, with this woman, there is a healthy fear of God, and this is visible in her life. She understands the greatness and majesty of the sovereign and holy creator, and therefore she possesses a healthy fear of God. She also seeks to be upright, innocent, and blameless in all she does. That's this phrase, pure conduct. Let's understand a couple things. First, a true fear of God and genuine purity are internal things. They start inside. A person who truly fears God because of his greatness and majesty and sovereignty and the wonders of who he is and the terribleness of who he is, someone who truly fears God, that, that comes out in behavior. That person honors, wants to honor and please the God that he or she fears. And this 
same person, there'll be an internal purity, and that purity inside will come out in how they live. So ladies, secondly, holiness in everyday life. That's visible to other people. Thirdly, holy wives and ladies cultivate true beauty. Verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But in contrast to that, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The Christian wife with an unsafe husband might be tempted to try to win him by focusing on her outward appearance because that's what he wants. He wants me to look beautiful, and I'm going to do that. That's going to be my focus too. No, Peter makes it clear that what's most necessary is internal beauty. By the way, I don't think Peter is prohibiting normal personal hygiene. Okay, Ladies, please don't go home and throw away your soaps and, and all that stuff and come to church next Sunday while the women took that sermon the wrong way. I don't think he's talking about that. I don't think he's prohibiting women from enhancing their attractiveness to her husband, attractiveness to her husband, by the use of makeup or beautiful attire. Don't go home and throw all your beautiful clothes away and next Sunday come in a pair of bib overalls. Uh, that's just, uh, don't do that. That's not the focus here. Peter's addressing a wife's sense of values here. Her focus should be, her focus should be the internal rather than the external. During the New Testament era, men often displayed their wealth and their social status in the dress of their wives. You know how rich I am by how my wife dresses. And often wives were therefore preoccupied with elaborate hairstyles and excessive makeup and jewelry and ornate dress and all the rest of it. The braiding of hair that he mentions was an art among Greek and Roman women involving the intertwining of, of chains of gold and strings of pearls in the hair. And often those hairstyles were secured with opulent combs and, and uh, nets of gold. So hair up and all bunch of stuff in there. Very beautiful. But the end result was very artificial, ostentatious. The putting on of gold jewelry probably referred to the practice of putting chains and rings and bracelets around the neck and the ankles and the wrists and the fingers. It was common in the New Testament period for women to change their clothes often throughout the day so they could display all their beautiful stuff. The Roman philosopher Seneca spoke of women who had two or three fortunes in their ears. I want to just note here, most of the women Peter's addressing in these churches, in this book, were not wealthy. They probably didn't possess the kinds of clothing and jewelry referenced here. So most of the women reading this are going, well, that doesn't apply to me, because it didn't. He spoke of slaves earlier, because that occurred in those churches. And those Women within slave homes certainly had very little. 
I think Peter mentions this as a general principle for all ladies. It's simply that godly women, regardless of their social status, regardless of their social status, are not unduly concerned with outward appearance, but rather focus on cultivating the inner inner beauty of a godly Christian character. So regardless of your situation, how much money you have, how much jewelry you have at home, how many drawers of makeup you have, and all the rest of it, regardless of all that, a godly woman is not unduly concerned with the external. Her greatest concern is the internal. Godly women do not desire to have eyes on them. I know Easter Sunday morning, right, we all dress up, and we love to see the little girls in whatever dress, cute little hat and all the rest, maybe a purse. It's wonderful. And I'm not, pro- I'm not saying don't do that. Please do that. We want our girls to be feminine, don't we? Biblical masculinity and femininity, we want to stress those things. We do stress those things. But wives aren't to walk around wanting eyes on them. Look at me. In church or any other place, I want everyone to look at me. So I'm going to wear this or that and have this much makeup and this much stuff in my hair. You know, there's a huge difference between internal beauty and external beauty. Now, just, let me just say, there are certain people who are just attractive. There are certain men who are handsome, and there are certain ladies who are just attractive, no matter what they do to themselves. Right? And there's the rest of us. Yeah, we all pause, look at each other. That's you. He's talking to you. Not talking to me. He's talking to you. Keep jabbing each other. Um, now, a great deal of, of external beauty is artificial. Some people are attractive, just bottom line. But you know, those people, good for them. But does it last? There's a woman in my church in Illinois... And an older woman, I think in her 70s, she had cataract surgery on both eyes. Came to me two Sundays later and said, Pastor, I looked in the mirror, once it had all healed, I had no idea how many wrinkles I had. I had no, she had no idea what she looked like. Old age catches up to all of us, right? A great deal of external beauty is artificial. It can be removed at will. A lot of external beauty can be taken off and washed off. That's just what I really look like. That's not how it is with internal beauty. Peter speaks of it as imperishable. It's real and abiding. It lasts. It doesn't fade. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we develop internal beauty. We focus on the internal, on our relationship with God. And becoming like Christ, we do that because... That will reap lasting, imperishable beauty, unlike the stuff that washes off and we can take off. This imperishable beauty is defined here as gentleness and a quiet spirit. Let the adornment be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Gentleness. A gentle woman is... The term means kind, humble, considerate, not selfish, not pushy, 
not bad-tempered, doesn't demand her own way. That's the idea of this term. Quiet spirit speaks of a tranquil and calm spirit. Luther defines it as a spirit that cannot be ruffled, not easily ruffled. I read once of a family camping in Texas who wanted to fish for crabs in the Sabine River. So imitating the locals, they used chicken necks on string as bait. Sounds weird to me, but apparently that's what you do if you're hunting crabs on the Sabine River. While fishing, the wife suddenly noticed an alligator drifting toward them. And she anxiously asked a Texan nearby, what do you do when this happens, when the alligator wants your stash of chicken necks? His response was, ma'am, he said this with a straight face, we generally just let him have it. The alligator can have whatever he wants. You know, there are people we all know who when they walk in the room are a little bit like the alligator, which is kind of they're strong-willed, they're selfish, they're self-focused, they're belligerent maybe, and we just kind of, oh, whatever they want, they can have it. Folks, men and women, we can't be like that. And clearly, this text addresses that in in ladies. Humble, kind, considerate, not pushy, not bad-tempered, tranquil, calm. Lastly, godly women eagerly learn from other godly women. Verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In other words, you trust in God. You're not overtaken by fear. You trust in the Lord. Godly women eagerly learn from other women. It's always helpful when we have a model to watch and follow. So Peter points out that there are many in history, throughout history, of Find examples of the kind of women described in verses 1 through 4. Sarah and others, although not perfect, certainly, were holy women who hoped in God, who submitted to their husbands, who desired to do right, who gained their security in a relationship with the Lord. They didn't fear anything. So we look to others. Ladies look to other ladies and learn from them. Now this kind of wives learning from wives thinking is clearly taught in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, which Eric read a few minutes ago. Let me read that text to you again. It's really an important text. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women, I don't think he's just speaking of chronological age. I think he's also speaking of maturity. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, Again, that fear of God. Not slanderers. They don't gossip and slander. They, they watch their tongue. Or slaves to much wine. They're self-controlled. They are to teach what is good. To whom? Keep reading verse 4. And so train older women, more mature ladies in the church, to train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, to be pure. The same word we saw, pure conduct in our text. Same word. To be pure. Working at home, 
teach the younger ladies how to work and be satisfied and enjoy working at home. So contrary to our culture. Um, teach them how to, be, to work at home, to be kind and submissive to their own husbands. It's the exact same phrase in the Greek as we find in 1 Peter. Same exact phrase. Submissive to your own husbands. So that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, that God and his word will not be spoken of with contempt. Again, the point is, ladies, people are watching you. They will see how you, not just church people, but just generally, the world, they're watching you. How you relate to your husband, how you relate to your family, how you rear your children, all of that is to be, go- is to be taught. One generation in the church teaches future generations in the church so that God will not be thought of with contempt by others and certainly by the world. Those of you ladies who have walked with the Lord for a a time and who are spiritually mature and faithful to the word, you have a responsibility. So if if that's you, please just listen for a moment. You have a responsibility relating to the younger ladies in our church. You're to model godliness, sweetness, submission to the younger ladies in our church. You're responsible to teach the next generation by your example, by your instructions. As younger ladies watch you, remember I told you that this friend of mine watched Fern Ennis? As other people watch you, as other ladies watch you, what are they learning? Are they learning reverence before God? A reluctance to gossip and slander? Temperance and self-control. How to love and care for family. How to be content with working at home. Purity, kindness. Are they learning from you uh, what a submissive spirit toward their husband means? We need to take this to heart. And train the younger generation. Because the world is attacking the women in our church like it never has. The family's been under attack for a long time. It's worse now. The idea of women submitting to, loving their family, caring for their children, staying at home, my goodness, we know that's not uh, what our culture is endorsing now. So more mature ladies here, our younger ladies need your help. And you're responsible before God for this. And younger ladies, you are responsible the assumption of this text, Titus, is that you're listening and watching and want to be taught, are eager to be taught. Will go to maybe some more mature ladies and say, I need to learn, teach me. That needs to happen here in our church family. So we have here one ingredient of a godly family, and that is a wife who expresses inner beauty with holy conduct. There's submission, there's holiness, there's a cultivation of real, lasting, true beauty, and there's an eagerness to learn from others. Let's take these texts to heart. Thank you for thinking this through with me. Let's apply it now. Thank you, Father, for your kindness and goodness. This text and so many others like it are so clear. 
We're up against a culture that denies all this. We're up against a culture that's attacking all of this. The, the family, the home, the husband-wife relationship is under attack. So, Father, make Grace Baptist Church a place where each one of us is obeying your word, following the patterns of founding your word, modeling Christ's likeness before others, learning from others. Bless the ladies in our church and all who are listening today as well. Help us, Lord, to stand out in a world that is so contrary to you. Not as proud and arrogant, but as holy as those who truly love, fear, and love you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.